Pardon me. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Uh, as Dick said, I come from time to time and usually somewhere around once a year. Uh, and uh, from the old connection that I have with this part of the state when I was teaching over at King's College for a number of years. Uh, and then in the last few years, I also taught at NIAC uh, in the city as well as over in uh, the competing town on the other side of the bridge. You invited me to speak on to speak on Jonah in the fourth chapter. That's an odd response that we just read at the beginning of this fourth chapter, an odd response of Jonah to the life that we have described in that book. I think it's more than a story. I think it is the life of a person. I remember in a museum in Monaco, the skeleton of a large fish big enough to swallow a human being. It's not a fiction. It can very well be have happened. But we read at the end of the third chapter, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. What an odd reaction. Let's go briefly again over that those verses, that information we have in the first part of the book of Jonah. Jonah is the son of a prophet in the city of uh, Gath. He is himself a prophet. Gath was one of the Philistine chapel, uh, chapels, yeah, the Philistine towns uh, north of Israel. It's the hometown of Goliath in scripture. And it seems to indicate that Jonah coming from there had a considerable amount of money. He was not a poor man, but he was tasked to do a specific thing. God called him to do something about the wickedness, the nastiness, the inhumanity, the cruelty, the neglect that was rampant in a large town, the Assyrian capital, called Nineveh. We read at the very end today in the fourth chapter how large the town was. It took you three days to go through it. It had 120,000 people. It was that large because there were no great skyscrapers, so people lived out rather than high. But it was an important town. And what is described about Nineveh is the kind of thing that you also find described in the first three chapters of Amos, where the prophet Amos goes around the different towns and countries around Jerusalem to accuse them of the inhumanity that they practice towards each other. And as he goes around Jerusalem, the circle becomes smaller, and Amos ends with, and you, O Jerusalem, are similarly wicked. They receive their judgment. How do you expect to escape that judgment? And that kind of cruelty, of neglect, of injustice, of disregard, of disrespect, of, uh, yeah, of, of greed, etc., was rampant there, and it was rampant in Nineveh. And Jonah is chosen, you're a prophet, go to Nineveh, 
shape up. Tell them that if they do not change their ways, there will be consequences. There will be a judgment from God himself. And Nineveh said, I'd rather not. He goes down to Joppa, and instead of taking the boat in the right direction, he takes probably the first boat there, and it goes in the opposite direction. Tashish is linked by many scholars to the modern town of Tunis, capital of Tunisia. Others link it to the eastern coast of Spain. In other words, all the way across the Mediterranean, that's where he goes. Run as far away from Nineveh as possible. And on the way, he runs into trouble. He gets indeed into the depth out of which only God can pull him. The depth physically and the depth spiritually, the depth personally, humanly, neglecting the need of Nineveh to shape up and to become more human in their relationship to each other. So we read there in the first chapter that Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa and paid passage on a boat, goes down into his cabin. We would say today, though they didn't have cabins, but down in his cabin and falls asleep. This business about going to Nineveh to say something important to help his fellow human beings escape the wrath that was sure to come did not bother him. He went asleep. And then you have the story that you're all familiar with, I'm sure. The storm comes, the boat rocks, the sailors are panicked. They each pray to their own God. Isn't that interesting? That's theological pluralism. All to their individual gods, provincial gods, which is the typical outlook of paganism. That is, you worship the forces of your geographical area, the inherited ideas from the tribe. You go with that. And they all pray to their own, which, of course, to any sensitive and sensible person means they couldn't be talking to the true God because their gods were local. They were private. They were invented. They were imagined. Perhaps there is such a force in the universe that looks only on me because I can tell you who they are. That's my tradition. And when that does not help at all, just does not still the storm, they turn to Jonah. Where do you come from? Are you perhaps the in possession of a better answer than those that failed us? And so Jonah says, I am a Hebrew. I worship God who made the heavens and the earth which would ring a bell in our mind because that's what Genesis says at the beginning. I am the God who is behind it all, who is the origin of it all. I made not just your valley or your mountains or your lakeside. I made everything, the heavens and the earth. Turn to me and you get some answers. Then you can have the confidence of believing what is true, not just believing what you're believing. And so they want to hear from Jonah. Jonah tells them, uh, I am the cause because actually 
this God, who is the creator of heaven and earth, has given me a task, and I'm running away. And so they respond to that, as we are told in the first chapter. Uh, they say, what do we do? We pray to God. And Jonah says, no, I have sinned. Throw me into the sea. And of course they say, no, 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 that would be inhuman. And Jonah says, no, throw me into the sea and you will be delivered. And so they go to their understanding of this God of Jonah and tell him that we're afraid to do that because that would be wrong. But Jonah wants me to do that. And they go ahead, throw him into the sea, and he gets swallowed by that fish. And of course, the storm, not of course, but the storm gets stilled. The boat is safe. They even uh, row towards the shore so that he doesn't get swallowed by the fish too far at sea. The Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days. In the second chapter, you have Jonah's, a report of Jonah's reflection of how he got into this situation, how desperate it is, how he is in the depth of despair, because this is the end of Jonah in the fish's belly. Except as he prays, remembers God, repents of his running away, and seeks deliverance, God delivers him. The fish spits him out, he lands on the shore, and goes to Nineveh. He goes to Nineveh to do the task. So here he was in the depth, and God pulled him out of that into a situation of his usefulness in declaring to Nineveh the need to repent, to change their ways, to turn to the living God. And wonderfully, we read that indeed, that's what they did. All the way from the king on down, the king puts on sackcloth and ashes. He commands that everybody in the city better change their way and repent and seek to the favor of God, the Lord of the universe. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger to that so that we will not perish. When God saw that, what they did and how they turned from the evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. And Jonah's response is there in the fourth chapter. He is cross. Here he's gone through all that to do God's work and to announce judgment. And judgment does not come. In the eyes, so Jonah thinks, in the eyes of the Ninevite, he must be a fool to have said all those things and promised all those things, and it doesn't happen. Of course, what happens is what was intended with the job that Nineveh had, and that is to announce the judgment so that they would, so that the judgment would never occur. That was the point of the accusation of the judgment pronounced, in the hope that they would judge themselves and change their ways. 
they would remove their guilt by no longer acting as they had acted. It was a conditional prophecy, a conditional promise is something that's frequent there in scripture. Remember the shipwreck of Paul in the 27th chapter of the book of Acts, when Paul is told by God, if you all stay together on the boat, no one will be lost. And as the sailors leave for fear that the boat would sink, Paul calls after them, you better come back or we will be lost. And so they come back and nobody is lost. There's a conditional promise to King David. And that is, if you stay and if you obey my laws, then the Messiah will come on your throne. And David is faithful and the Messiah comes on the throne of David. However, Solomon receives a promise that only if you stay on according to the live according to the law, will the Messiah also come on your throne as the child of David. He is the next in line. And Solomon fails, and the Messiah never comes through the family of Solomon, but rather through another son of David. A conditional promise, a conditional prophecy is not a violation, is that does is not uh, done away when that which is announced does not occur because the circumstances, the contributing factors have in fact changed. I laugh at your politicians who accuse President Biden of having said something in 1994 and demand that he sticks to it in 2022. How ridiculous is a person not allowed to change his mind? To come to better wisdom or insight or pursue other goals? We're not in this kind of a uh, situation where once something is said, it is like the laws of the Medes and the Persians, written in stone, fixed and unchangeable. So what we have here is Jonah being disappointed that his prophecy doesn't come to be pass. You see, Jonah is a, seems to be a person who is so wrapped up with himself alone. He runs away from the task God has given him. He falls asleep down in the cabin, not worried about what was going on, until he gets so serious that he has to be thrown overboard in order for the boat not to sink. When he does go to Nineveh and accomplish that, what he sets out to do, that is that the people repent, he becomes angry, we read. And the odd thing is that he says he becomes angry even though he recognizes that God is not what it is. Uh, God is gracious and uh, compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity when people repent and when the calamity is no longer necessary as a judgment on that behavior of the Ninevites. So God says, do you have any right to be angry? What has God done that, accuses, that allows you to be angry? And Jonah sulks. And he goes out and builds himself a little shed. And there to rest and to just no longer be involved in this. And God, this lovely story here, God 
uses the growth of a vine that grows miraculously overnight, gives them shade. And then in the next day, it wilts and the shade is gone. And again, Jonah is angry because he's still so full of himself, so concerned about his happiness, about his reputation, about his calling in quotation marks. And again, in verse 9, God says, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, Jonah says. I'm angry enough to die. There are some other passages in Scripture where people were so frustrated they were ready to die, like Elijah. When after God showed himself in power with the Baal's priest, to show that God is the living God and not an idol. The people still mock Elijah, and Elijah says, I've done everything possible, and still the people will not believe. And he goes out, and he goes to sleep, and he says, I'm ready to die. Or take Jesus Christ himself, who at one point says, is there no other way? But if there isn't, then you will be done, and I'm willing to die. But I'd rather not. I dread this hour, but for this hour still, I have come into the world. Or Job, surrounded by his foolish friends, who declare that Job deserves everything he suffers because that proves what a nasty man he must have been, what an unfaithful person he must have been. And Job says, that's not true. There's no evidence for that. The friends thought that everything is regulated and prescribed. And if you suffer, that is, must be an indication of your nastiness, of your sinfulness, of your disobedience, etc. And Job says, no, there are other factors. And when his friends don't pay attention to him in the seventh chapter of Job, Job says, he's ready to die. I've had enough of this kind of a world, this kind of a response. And so here he says even to God, yes, I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord says, you've been concerned about your, the vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. And you're not concerned about the people of Nineveh? And you're not pleased that they have repented and turned away and the judgment of God has not fallen on Nineveh? What's wrong with you? And so there are the physical death, the depth of the boat, the hiding away, the being swallowed by the fish from which he is delivered. And there's one more area in which, in which Jonah needs deliverance, and that is from the depth of his self-centeredness, from the depth of seeing everything only revolving around him, his feelings, the burden of having to go to Nineveh when he rather stayed in Tarshish, with his money, with his fellow prophets, whatever he was doing there. He needed to be delivered from that focus on himself, on his feelings of justifying himself or being angry that things weren't going quite the way he expected them to go. Because God had said, go to Nineveh and announce judgment. But Jonah should have been understood that the judgment, of course, is conditional on the Ninevites doing nothing or continuing in their old ways. And much to the surprise of many, I'm sure, and much to the benefit of everybody in Nineveh, that repentance led to the reality 
that God's promised judgment never came. That is then. Now, the lesson we must draw from that is, as I try to indicate in uh, the, in the, uh, what do you call it? Thank you. <laughs> that no work is finished until the work has actually been done on us as well. And then until we ourselves do not see ourselves as the center of the universe, dwell on our disappointments or on our fear of what other people would say, but are free from that to rejoice in the mercy and justice of God and are free to go to Nineveh and to deal with the suffering of mankind, of human beings, of the cruelty of people to people and address them concretely in acts of mercy as God shows his mercy to us. I think it's scandalous, for instance, that in New York City there are schools that have no school books. How is a child supposed to learn to read? I think it's scandalous the way we Europeans don't welcome the people coming across the ocean from North Africa. Sure, you want to know who they are, you want to examine them, you want to see uh, their motivation, etc., etc. But to just let them sink in the Mediterranean and do nothing further is indeed to be so concerned about my right to vacations and clean beaches, my right to my income, to the steadiness of my employment, etc., which I don't have. And the same with what you struggle with in Europe's southern border, where the absence of the realization of a border or of proper registration of people coming into the country has led to a tragic situation with a failure to invest in Central American countries, to give employment and education and peace in the streets in those countries, has led to the tragedy at your own borders. There's much that is going on that we mustn't just hide from, to make ourselves secure, to rent a cabin and a boat and feel we're safe. That's not the world we live in. We live in a world that is so extremely cruel in the details of the way people relate to people. You struggle with racism in this country. We struggle with fascism in our countries. We struggle with cruelty between men and women. The battle is never finished. There is no cabin in a boat to hide in. But there is work to be done. And the work needs to be done on us as well as on Nineveh. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, give us the freedom to admit our weakness, our failure, our need for security and the greedy reach for it. Help us to understand that sometimes that's at the expense of other people's lives. And help us to imagine ways that we could, in small areas and larger voices, repair ourselves to be your people, 
that express in life the mercy that you have shown to Nineveh, the mercy that you've shown to us individually, the mercy that you've shown to our cultural background in which we live in relative peace. And in that connection, our Heavenly Father, we also pray together against the evil intention of Mr. Putin. We pray, Father, that he may come to his senses, that somebody will reach him, that our Heavenly Father, the cruelty intends to impose on others in military way and in political ways may be hindered, may be stopped. And I ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Take time now, as we've been doing each week, to listen. What's God been saying to us this morning? So some of you are journaling or taking notes. Feel free to get ready to do that. And let's take a moment and ask God, God, what work are you doing on me this morning? So let me pray for us and then give you a minute to listen. God, we thank you for your word. You love us. You show mercy on us. You also mercifully and lovingly poke us and say, hey, I want to deal with this in you. I want to work on this in you because I want you to be more like me. So open our ears and open our hearts now as we take time to listen to what you're saying to us this morning. Amen. And I want to invite you just silently to ask God, God, what are you working on in me this morning, this week? I'll give you a minute to reflect on that. And if something's coming to mind, maybe a thought, maybe a picture, maybe one of the, maybe a particular scripture or an idea or conviction about something, feel free to, to jot it down so that you can take it with you and continue to let God work on you about it. 
I'd also encourage you, um, coffee starting up again. We're going to have coffee upstairs this morning. Should be warm upstairs. That furnace is working. Um, to just share with one another what God's working on you about.